Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. Many of you have heard the health and wellness and science shows that we have done about the body this summer and last summer. And I've read a book called The Autoimmune Epidemic by Donna Jackson Nakazawa. Donna got 3,000 of the world's top scientists to bless and support her book. You absolutely have to get this book. Autoimmune diseases are more prevalent than you can imagine. 23.5 million people suffer from autoimmune disease. 80% of them, women. You're going to be surprised when you find out the role of toxins, environmental toxins, heavy metals, vaccinations. The list goes on and on. But the way Donna Jackson Nakazawa puts it together for us she really stewards a incredible synthesis of discoveries and is leading in the world about the autoimmune epidemic. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Donna Jackson Nakazawa to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really, really pleased at what you've done in this book. It is so complete. We have a short amount of time today, and I think the first thing I want you to do is lay it out for us, what an autoimmune disease is and what does it do in the body? Well, there are over 100 autoimmune diseases. First, I want to make that clear, and sometimes people really don't realize there's a little disconnect in terms of autoimmune disease. What is that? It's lupus. It's MS. It's um, rheumatoid arthritis. It's juvenile arthritis. It's type 1 diabetes. It's a lot of diseases that we tend to not even think about, thyroiditis, but they're all in one group because in all of these diseases, the body works in a similar way, and that is that the body's immune system becomes confused, and rather than just send out good antibodies to help fight disease through our white blood cells, we begin to produce something called autoantibodies. And auto means self. And the antibodies are the fighter cells that are going out to prevent us from having disease, whether it's a virus or bacteria or what have you. Well, autoantibodies, whether it's an autoantibody in thyroiditis or an autoantibody in rheumatoid arthritis, they attack the body itself, the organs and systems of the body itself. So in thyroiditis, we have our own immune system turning on our own thyroid. Rheumatoid arthritis, our own immune system is turning on the, the, and inflaming the joints and, and areas of the body where we see that kind of heavy inflammation. That's what autoimmune disease is. And it's over 100 different common, many of them common diseases, and we don't always realize that they fall under this one umbrella. Like Epstein-Barr, too, and Hashimoto's, right? Hashimoto's. Epstein-Barr is not, um, is not Epstein-Barr, if you're talking about Epstein-Barr as chronic fatigue, chronic fatigue is still being um, categorized by many different scientists as to whether or not it's falling under the autoimmune label. Many suspect that it is. Fibromyalgia, very similar. It's, um, they're still searching for the autoantibody that's at work. So scientists will not say that a disease is clinically an autoimmune process 
unless they can find the autoantibody that's turning on the body. But the relationship between autoimmune disease, chronic fatigue, and fibromyalgia is very, very distinct. There are multiple ways we can test for this. You named a couple for some of the diseases in the book, but is there a generic test available yet? No, there is not. Um, When autoimmune diseases started to be noticed in the population, no one really understood that they were an autoimmune process, again, an attack of self on self. In fact, um, there was a Nobel Prize winner who was quite famous for a saying called her autotoxicus which is that the body has a horror of turning on itself and it would never happen. And this pervaded medical theory way until the 1980s. In fact, it wasn't until the 1980s that the idea of autoimmune disease was really regularly taught in med schools because it took a long time, um, as the great writer Thomas Kuhn says, to overturn the medical norm takes about 20 years. So even though research was going on looking at autoantibodies in lab rabbits and showing how their autoantibodies were turning on their thyroids, and that was happening in the 50s and 60s, it wasn't until the 80s that doctors really understood autoimmune disease existed. Can you imagine if we didn't know cancer existed? <laughs> and what caused, you know, how it worked in the body with tumors until the 1980s? Well, that's the situation with autoimmune disease. We knew people were getting sick with arthritis. We knew people were getting sick with their thyroids. We knew they were getting sick with neurological autoimmune diseases, I mean, neurological diseases like MS. But the idea that they're all one pathway, that they all happen the same way, is very late out of the gate. What that means is that all the different areas, so rheumatoid arthritis and other um, arthritic autoimmune diseases and rheumatological autoimmune diseases, they were patients who had already been co-opted and were all being seen by a specific group of specialists, the rheumatologists. People with neurological disorders were all already being seen by the neurologists and so on down the line. So there was no getting together at the top of the mountain by these different specialists. And they're saying, okay, all these people actually have a very similar disease. I say that because it's important to understand when we ask ourselves, well, we have this epidemic. We are, you know, at a place where we should be much further along in terms of understanding and treating it. Well, we're not in part because the discovery was late And all of the different groups of medical specialists had already taken over on these areas of research. And there is no single test for autoimmunity. If you have neurological symptoms, there are a number of different tests that doctors will do often through, unfortunately, spinal taps to find out if you have certain um, assays uh, and biomarkers for MS. Guillain-Barre syndrome, and so on down the line. There are a set of autoantibody tests for rheumatoid arthritis and other arthritic autoimmune diseases, and so on down the line. Having said that, there can probably never be one test for autoimmune disease because each part of the body in which there is an autoantibody at work 
is that autoantibody is going to look extremely different given the area of the body where it's working and the disease that it is causing. Does that make any sense? It makes total sense. So then what it really tells us is that the action is in prevention, prevention, prevention. Let's talk about vaccinations. There's new knowledge now that is being gathered by many people, both researchers and many doctors, about the complexity and some of the dangers of vaccinating that was never taken into account before in the autoimmune epidemic. You talk about vaccinations and how they may trigger autoimmune responses. Can you talk about that? Well, sure I can. But first, just a little disclaimer in that the majority of vaccinations that we receive um, today If they're done carefully and under consideration by a really good physician, especially I'm talking about children who isn't going to overwhelm them at any one time with too many vaccines, is going to do it in in the right time frame, I do have to step forward and say this is very complicated. If we stopped giving a number of those childhood vaccines, we would see far greater deaths from some of these other diseases than we see from autoimmune disease. So it isn't, people can't look at it as a black and white picture. Understood. None of us want to see polio come back. Understood. None of us us want to see kids dying from rubella. So, So I have to be very clear about that. I am a science reporter. I have seen the statistics on how many lives we save with vaccination. I'll tell you right now, I vaccinated my children. Okay, so (laughs) because I understand what happens if if we don't have those vaccines. Now, at the same time, if there are optional vaccines, then some of those I'm going to step away from because what happens in the vaccination process is that at the same time a vaccine is, is potentially saving a life in the future, it is exciting the immune system. So you're putting something, well, let's think, step back and think about what does the immune system do? The immune system is there to recognize foreign invaders. In the time we've had this conversation, your immune system and mine will have been looking at and making decisions about thousands and hundreds of thousands of times by the end of this conversation. Is something good or bad for us? Everything we touch, everything in the air we breathe, if you and I were to take a sip of water during our conversation, our immune system would be evaluating every every tiny bit of it to see is there something in here I need to go on the defense about and start to attack. So when we have a vaccine, at the same time that science has done this incredible thing and allowed us to get a little bit of a bad thing so that in the future we won't die from it, we are exciting the immune system. So there are certain vaccines in which we have seen, um, you know, a, a, a dangerous relationship between the vaccine itself and and certain disorders, particularly the one that's... Um, that the science is really complete on is Guillain-Barre syndrome. So if anybody remembers the swine flu crisis a couple of decades ago when we were having this huge swine flu epidemic, in fact, when we started to give the, the vaccine for swine flu, we saw a lot of cases, not we, I personally was very young then, I think I was like 10 or 5, <laughs> but when that vaccine was started, 
started to be given to the population, we began to see that six weeks later from that vaccine, we had a high number of people who were coming down with a condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome. I myself have had it multiple times. Now, I have not had it from a vaccine. I've had mine based on um, exposure to the stomach flu, which can, in fact, also cause Guillain-Barre syndrome. But when we introduce a foreign virus to the body, we are perking up the immune system for some people, and we don't know who, but certainly some people who got the swine flu vaccine, there can then be a reaction where that immune system overfires, gets overexcited, and then, as I explained before, begins to develop autoantibodies because it's confused. Who am I attacking? Am I attacking the vaccine? Am I attacking the body? Where am I supposed to go and fight? And it begins to give the, the, the symptoms of the disease Guillain-Barre syndrome because the autoantibodies begin to attack the myelin sheaths. And the myelin sheaths protect our axonal nerves. If we don't have intact myelin sheaths, which work as kind of like the insulation around electrical cords to conduct information, then when our brain sends the signal leg walk, the leg isn't going to get that signal. And that results in the flaccid paralysis of Guillain-Barre syndrome. The major thing that I thought was relevant in the vaccination area was the thimerosal, which is part of vaccinations. And I don't want to underestimate this because mercury is in the air, in the food supply, in our environment. So the role of mercury with regard to impacting or being one of the causal instruments or triggers for autoimmune disease is what? Okay, this is very complicated. There is a genetic mercury dance, which is very complicated. And at a research university out in California at Scripps, there are some really genius guys who have been working with mercury and and, and lab animals, lab rats. And there are a vast array of different lab rats, some of whom you could give a huge exposure of mercury to, and they're going to be just fine. There are others, because of their genetic predisposition, who are not going to be fine. Um, I think in the book I likened it to if you had a bunch of rats and they had to get through a long train of boxes. Let's just pretend we have a long train of boxes. We could take the group that can get a high exposure of mercury and tell them to crawl through that long line of boxes, and they're going to make it all the way through, and they're going to be fine at the end. We could take the ones that are very susceptible to mercury through their genetic expression, and they are going to die in box one. They aren't going to be able to get all the way through. Here's the problem. We have no idea who among us are in that genetic subset. Again, we're not rats, but we can make certain extrapolations from rats to humans. We all, we all process and methylize mercury and other toxins differently. No two people are the same. And that's what's so really disturbing about the amount of mercury in our environment from so many different sources, from eating tuna and swordfish. Um, you know, thimerosal has been removed from a lot of vaccines. 
but it is another mercury exposure that many people had when they were young. But we have far bigger exposures in our diet and in our atmosphere. Talk about mercury it. Mercury is coming down every day in yes. our atmosphere. Yes. So, so who are the rats who will make it all the way through the box and it won't bother them a bit? And who are the ones through their genetic expression who are going to be very sick? And are those people who are more prone to mercury sensitivity because of their genetic expression, are they going to be the people who are sicker with autoimmune disease? I'm going to cut in here for just a moment, Donna. Just to say to you that I totally get what you're saying in terms of our genetic predisposition. I get that. But there's also mounting evidence that there are really no safe levels of mercury. I'm going to get to that. Okay, good. Yeah, I totally understand that. Trust me, I'm the last person to say, pour on the mercury and 20% of us will survive. I don't know what we'll look like or how we'll evolve through evolutionary (laughs) biology. It probably wouldn't be very pretty. But what I am trying to say is that, you know, it's a little scary that we we know that some people are going to get sick and we know some people are going to be okay. We really don't know who those people are. So, you know, what do we have to do in terms of looking at mercury exposure? Well, you know, they're clipping women's hair in New York City and finding the average woman in New York City has a very high mercury load. So, so, so who's going to get sick from that and who isn't? It's important for people to understand that some of that has to do with genetic expression. And I'll tell you why that's so important, because otherwise I can tell you all day long that mercury in the atmosphere and mercury in your food is really bad for you, but you're going to turn around and you're going to say to me, but hey, Aunt Polly is fine and Uncle Jim is fine and I'm fine. So if we don't understand that mercury exposures are very different for different people, then we continue on this merry road where we have corporations that are able to say, well, if it's so bad, why isn't everyone sick? Got it. That's why the genetic expression of peace has to be the beginning of the conversation. Without it, you have too many people claiming that we don't have enough evidence. Well, the truth is there Mercury is really bad for our bodies. And we have other researchers. Let's move away from our researchers with the rats in the boxes. And let's move to another set of researchers who are actually looking at what mercury exposure does in terms of triggering autoimmune disease. And these researchers have found that indeed mercury can be a trigger in lab animals for autoimmune disease. So when we put all that together... We have a kind of complicated picture in that mercury exposure can cause autoimmune disease extrapolating to humans in humans who have a genetic predisposition for it. That's pretty big. I want to talk to you a little bit about the fact that there's 80,000 environmental toxins overtaxing our human immune system. We're living in a post-war chemical explosion, and you talk about this new plague of autogens, which you say is 80% of the 23.5 million people that suffer from autoimmune diseases. These women are having some type of mimicking of their endocrine receptors. They have something going on with estrogen in their body. I want you to talk about estrogen, what the mimicking of endocrine receptors does, What are endocrine disruptors? Can you talk about that? Now, the $64 million question has been, why do women get 
so many more autoimmune diseases than men. Why is that? And that research is still, frankly, outstanding. And I know some of the people working on it, and it's it's really probably going to come down to an issue of hormones. I was just going to say, it seems obvious to me it that it's obvious, hormones. But, you know, <laughs> they're still ironing it out, but it does look as if it, it has to do with our hormones. And interestingly, and this is really comes out in my next book, The Last Best Cure, is that it really looks as if it's also linked to how we manufacture stress chemicals in the body. It's a whole other topic that's not in this book, but it looks as if when women are stressed, we produce a higher level of cytokine activity and stress hormones that help to whip up the immune system into unhealthy responses. So, that may be where we're going. The science isn't in yet, but that does look like where it's going. In the meantime, what we understand, I don't think there's, any, you'd have to be under a rock for the last five years not to have heard the words endocrine disruptors. So endocrine disruptors are really interesting. Let's say we're in a radio station and I'm sending out a frequency from my radio station, and I'm also receiving frequencies into my radio station so I can, you know, play this show. So with endocrine disruptors, what happens is that something that's artificial, that's in the bloodstream, it could come from a chemical like PCPs, it could come from plastic additives such as BPA, and, and really a huge exposure is common pesticides. So these break down in our bloodstream, they look, they mimic, they look a lot like an endocrine disruptor. I mean, they look a lot like an endocrine hormone. They look a lot like these secretions. And what happens is that they begin to occupy special receptors that are made to receive real estrogen hormone on the cells of various organs in our bodies. And this is a real problem because then what happens is that we begin to screw up that radio signal. If that radio signal is being sent out from the station or receptor, then and, and suddenly that little receptor is taken up by something artificial, we're only really beginning to understand what that means for disease in the body. And that's why you're starting to see a lot of research on endocrine disruptors and diabetes, endocrine disruptors and obesity, endocrine disruptors and every kind of disease that we can think of because we are blocking our natural estrogen hormone signals. They can't send out any signal at all, or they send it out and it's one way, or it's blocked because something else is sitting in that parking spot. We don't get it yet completely how dangerous this is going to be for human health, but we do believe it plays a role in autoimmune disease and it may well play a role in why autoimmune disease is more prevalent for women. The pieces of the puzzle aren't together, but we're not really that far from putting them together. You know, we just figured out in the last 10 to 15 years that you need more natural progesterone in the body than estrogen once you're perimenopause and menopausal. In complementary and integrative medicine, that's already clear, and there's evidence for that. So I can just imagine when you bring in environmental toxins and pesticides and cosmetic input on the skin and a lot of the things that we use on our skin, which is the biggest organ of the body, 
plus what we're breathing in the air. If we're not chelating in any way, if we're not doing prevention, what must be happening with these endocrine disruptors being turned on us, so to speak? But I wanted you also to share a little bit about the Buffalo, New York hazardous waste site as just an example of the 1,200 sites that have yet to be cleaned up. This is not to go into a negative spin about anything, but there was many profound things you said in the book. But one of them really struck me, which said you can eat the best foods, take the best vitamins, take care of yourself and exercise, and you can drink pure water and you can do all of these things that are proactive. But sorry, folks, if you're near one of these hazardous waste sites, you didn't say it in this way, but basically it may nullify everything you're doing to take care of yourself. Do you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. And so let me give you an image that I use throughout the book, and you'll be familiar with it, um, having just read it. And I call it the barrel effect. And so we all have, we're all, you can you can see, I use a lot of analogies. Yeah, that's a great analogy, yeah. by the way. We, we do it because we're trying to bridge the scientists that we, we work with and, and interview and follow around in their labs with people who want to really understand this information, but a lot of us can understand it better if we have an image to hang on to. I certainly know that I can. So in the barrel effect, what I call throughout the book the barrel effect, we're all like the proverbial barrel. We've all seen that moment where you have water rise and rise and rise, whether it's in a cup or a pail or a barrel, and it gets all the way up to the top, and it's still in a state of homeostasis. Nothing has spilled over. But you can do this experiment with kids, and I think most kids go through it in grade school, where you add that last drop, just one more, and the water spills. It begins to spill, not that one drop, but much more than it. And in that, in that, in, in that analogy, our immune systems are somewhat similar. Um, we can walk down the street eating a sandwich made with Velveeta cheese, which no offense to Velveeta, but it's really, you know, it's not, it's not, healthy food. It's processed chemical food with artificial colors, artificial flavorings, artificial everything. Well, our body doesn't really recognize those artificial foods. And it goes, okay, is this an invader? Is this an invader? Is this an invader? Usually we can handle that. Our immune system can figure out, well, it is different. It's not something that I recognize from my evolutionary biology, but okay, I'll let it pass. A block later, we walk by a guy who's spraying the rose bushes. And he's spraying it with a, a type of pesticide, which is an endocrine disruptor. And we take a full whiff of it before we realize what's happening. And now our immune system is going, okay, Velveeta cheese, you know, pesticides, what is all this stuff entering, entering, entering? And, and then we pull out our sunscreen or our cosmetic block or whatever. We're deciding, you know, we're heading to the beach on our little walk with our Velveeta cheese sandwich. And so we rub it all over our face and it's got all kinds of things in it, which are also bad for the body and endocrine disruptors or many cosmetics have things in them which are not good for us. So we're going down the street and now by the time we get to the beach, our immune system is buzzing. It's going, whoa, you know, fight this, don't fight that, fight this, don't fight that. All of a sudden the war is bigger, it's more complicated and they're more likely to make mistakes. Our immune system is more likely to make mistakes because we've really outpaced our evolutionary ability to keep up with all the things that we're being exposed to, whether it's through the air we breathe, the things we touch, the stuff we put in our mouth, or any other 
entry into our body. So having said that, if all those exposures were drops of water in the barrel, the barrel's spilling over. If you live near a toxic waste site, we don't have statistics on this, but let's say you're starting with your barrel half full. So all the other exposures you're going to get through the day that many of us get, we pick up our dry cleaning, we've got trichloroethylene in our dry cleaning, we've got um, the stuff in our face cream. All day long, we use super glue and we've got some exposures to different agents there that are related to autoimmune disease. We decide to use some turpentine to work on something in the garage. Well, there's another exposure related to autoimmune disease. If we also live near a toxic waste site in close proximity, wow, that barrel is just so much more likely to be literally pouring water over. And so what I suggest people do, because we do have a lot of Superfund sites that were never cleaned up, is that they look into, you know, the area in which they live. And there are ways to do that. Um, I spent a lot of time up in Buffalo, New York, a particular neighborhood, which has a strikingly high rate of lupus. These are the nicest people in the world living in a community near several Superfund sites. And the rate of lupus is so high that the local universities have multiple outreach programs going into the community. If you drive through this area of Buffalo, you will see signs that say, know someone with lupus, bring them in. How, you know, that's kind of scary that where you live is going to define the billboards in your neighborhood about your disease prevalence because of your address. I love that you put also links to how people can find out how many toxic waste sites are near their area. Right. Yeah, I think everybody kind of wants to have heard from a lot of people. And, and I have a real um, connection to Buffalo at this point. I've gone up there quite a bit to do... Um, different um, events in that neighborhood and, and I've been able to bring a lot of attention to that neighborhood and it just, it's heartbreaking to see. I met people where almost every kid in the family and both parents had autoimmune disease and I met families like this regularly. It's very frightening. You've been through your own horrific series of attacks on your own immune system. Necessity is the mother of invention I can see how you've pulled this research and this book right through your life and brought it to the world by what you've been through. Well, I think that that is every writer's goal. Um, you know, when we're going through <laughs> all of our training as journalists and, um, and figuring out, you know, what kind of topics we really want to center on, it so often comes down to what draws from you uh, the greatest desire to seek out new answers. And for me, looking at the unanswered questions of autoimmune disease, um, as I began to go through my own journey, you know, frankly, it made me a little bit mad. I, I couldn't believe that we didn't have more answers. I couldn't believe that we didn't have a better understanding of what was causing it. And when I began to do the really difficult research of looking into how high rates have become and how they have doubled and tripled in the last 30 years, I got pretty mad. Um, and I started calling a lot of people and going in to see different people 
as a journalist to get more information. Um, but I did it also for another reason. I have two kids. My dad had autoimmune issues. He died when I was a child. And I just felt there had to be a way to fight back. No mother wants to leave their kids behind for a disease that she doesn't understand and couldn't combat. So to me, there was a real personal thread, and it's why I dedicated the book to my two kids. I didn't want to leave them. I didn't want to be following in the footsteps of my dad, who died when I was 12, and, and, and not have a handle on what was happening to me. And so I got really busy, and I, at the same time, would never have written the book just for myself. It made me mad that there are 23.5 million other people other than myself in, the, in America alone. And, and frankly, the um, American Autoimmune Disease and Related Diseases Association, ARDA, really believes that number is double. They say the number is 50 million. Um, I took the NIH number, but many people will tell you autoimmune disease afflicts 50 million Americans. Um, and, and, and my feeling was, you know, whatever I can learn, I want to share because it's outrageous. It's outrageous that more people have autoimmune disease than heart disease or cancer, and yet it gets a pittance of the funding, and we know so much less about it. So this book was really my gift to everyone who knows anyone with an autoimmune disease Anyone raising children in today's world, which is so much more toxic than the world we grew up in, who wants to help protect their immune systems, and anyone who's simply looking for ways to review and revisit how to be, as you said earlier, proactive and preventive with the fact that our immune system can no longer keep up with everything that we're being exposed to in our 21st century life. Your story is very, very moving, and the book is so profoundly powerful. I really want to thank Dr. Gary Gordon of the Gordon Research Institute. I saw a video of him talking about how your book was one of the most important books of this century. And I interviewed well, how him. How nice of him. <laughs> I interviewed him about a month ago. Actually, it was through watching that video that I wanted to read your book. And well, I thank him for that. He's, he's done a great deal of good work. And I am, um, again, you know, no book like this exists without a lot of different clinicians, researchers, scientists, and doctors um, helping me every step of the way. We only have two or three minutes left, but I wanted to leave the audience with some type of hopefulness in the sense of how integrative and complementary medicine is helping people work on the prevention side, like in the case of Dr. Mullen. Can you share briefly what happened to him? Jerry Mullen is a physician, many years long standing in traditional medicine, and he found himself paralyzed on disability, unable to work because of an autoimmune disease, a neurological autoimmune disease. And he spent the next nine months of his life in bed, unable to move, reading everything that he could find about complementary medicine, um, from cleaning out the body, from different toxins to supplementation, every possible thing that he could do. And, um, and, and today, Jerry, by the way, is out with his own book recently, Wow. Um, maybe he can be your next show. That would be um, awesome. About the importance of the immune system in the gut. 
because he is a, a gastroenterologist. And today he's running around on talk shows promoting his book, um, and and you would never know that he had had this terrible year of his life in bed on disability. And so he is a real proponent of what we call functional medicine. And functional medicine is a, is a relatively new movement in this country that I think is is the most hopeful medical movement that I know of. It is complementary medicine integrated with integrative medicine, and it basically asks... What's making us so sick and how do we get rid of it? It's a very simple paradigm. What's making us so sick and how do we get rid of it? So are there, are, do you have a heavy body burden of toxins? Do you have a heavy body burden of mercury? Do you have a heavy body burden because of a highly processed diet of overactivity of candidas or yeast? Um, do you have parasite activity? Whatever it might be. What's bugging you and how do we get rid of it? And then it starts to apply different methodologies, terms of supplements, whether, you know, some functional medicine physicians will use chelation, some will use saunas have become very popular. You know, it may be certain medications that need to be visited in terms of cleaning out yeast or um, parasites for some people. And then once we get that body's toxic load down, once we clean out that barrel, we're looking at someone who feels radically different. And so that really is the hope in addition to, frankly, a lot of really good drug studies coming up. There are certain people who are in a certain place with their disease, whether it's lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, where, to be frank, we can chelate and we can get them through a functional medicine specialist and they may feel a lot better, but there may be too much damage I for them you. to I really succeed without also a, a really strong and, um, and, and, and well-tested FDA-approved drug. So I, am, I really believe that there is a marriage between the two. I work with patients regularly. I hear from thousands of them who are helped by complementary medicine, but n- not everybody is able to throw away their pill bottle. Um, but they feel better, they function better, and they do better, however they're going to blend Western and integrative medicine. It's a marriage, and you know what it really takes at the end of the day? It takes having a great team of doctors. It takes having doctors who are willing to work with your integrative specialist and working so that you have the best health possible through all the means available. Now, here's where integrative health is really so powerful, and it's what you said again, prevention. If we begin to understand that the body is a barrel and we want to keep things out of it, how much easier is it to keep things out than it is to go back and reverse the damage that they've done later? And that means being really careful about the foods you eat eating a whole foods diet, cutting out as many processed food additives as you can. Excuse me. It also means looking at the cosmetics and body products you use. It couldn't be any easier than going to environmental working group or, um, uh, you know, a number of different organizations that have lists of good and bad cosmetics right there at your fingertips. And, And looking at every exposure that we have. And then we can help to prevent the immune system 
from becoming overexcited. And that's really, um, I think it's an exciting time. I'm so glad you wrote the book. I'm so sorry you went through everything that you went through. But if you got your health back and this book came out of it, then I'm so happy. Well, I'm, it's a journey, and my next book is really devoted to even more of the, of the complementary things that we can do um, to, to drev down the immune system. And so that's really my next journey is really how do we keep that immune system in a state of homeostasis so that it's there for us when we really need it, but it's not overreacting when we don't. I'm very excited to read that. I want to thank you for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Donna Jackson Nakazawa, the author of The Autoimmune Epidemic. You must pick up the book, and you can find out more about her and her books and her lectures and appearances at Donna Jackson Nakazawa. I'll spell the last name, N-A-K-A-Z-A-W-A. And thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us, Donna. Kim, thanks so much. I appreciate it so much. It was lovely.